We're going to move over now into part three. You should have your notes there. It says, understanding conflict biblically, part three. Go and show your brother his fault. But also, the last part it says to gently restore. Gently restore and go and show your brother his fault. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the idea here is that we are to go to our brother first and foremost. We're to go to them in private, just you and that person. Does that make sense? So when should you go to someone? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin... You who are spiritual should restore him with gentleness. With gentleness. So there is an offense that's taken place. When is it an offense that we should go and speak to them about? There's two situations when you think about it. There are situations where we are the offender. And there are situations when we are the offended. Now, I really don't like the word offended. Okay, I think it is misused a lot. My dad likes to say, you know what offends me the most? Offended people. That's kind of funny. Well, he's a little grumpy right now, so that's okay. We'll forgive him for that. But it seems like offense has been elevated to something that it really shouldn't be. So I use that word just so you understand. There's situations where we are the guilty party, where we have sinned against someone, where we have caused an offense in some way, and there are other situations where we have received an offense in some way, where we have been sinned against, where we have been acted against. So, when does somebody, when are you to go to someone? Well, first of all, if you know someone has something against you, you are to go. If you know that someone has something against you, you are to go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. God takes this very seriously. This person, this, this picture is someone that's in, in the, it's at the altar. He's in the process of worshiping. He's about to make a, an offering to the Lord, which is worship. And what does he say? Leave that there and go make things right with this person. God takes this very seriously. You may have the ability to clarify a misunderstanding. You may learn that you, you were wrong in some way and you need to deal with that. 
<clears throat> you may help to deliver the other person from the acid of unforgiveness. So you need to go to someone that you know they have an offense against you. But also, when someone has sinned against you, when you are the receiver of that, when someone sins they are too serious to overlook, then you need to go to them. If they're too serious to overlook, you need to go to them. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Matthew 18 again says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So if there is a sin that you cannot overlook, then you need to go to them. Ask yourself these questions. Is it dishonoring God? Is it dishonoring God? Is God being defamed in some way? Ultimately, our sin is against God, yes. But the passage there in Romans talks about hypocrisy and the hypocrisy on the part of leaders who knew better. Is God being dishonored? And it talks about the ramifications in that passage of what the world looks at, how the world looks at the church, how it ultimately looks at God. So is God being dishonored? The second question, is it damaging your relationship? Is it damaging your relationship? Has your relationship become changed to the point where you would say it's damaged? It's not functioning as it should. It's crippled. Or it may be even almost non-existent. The next question is, is it hurting other people? And include yourself in this. Is it hurting other people? Is it causing other people to sin in any way? And the last question, is it hurting the offender? Is it hurting them? Is it actually hurting them? Those are things that help you kind of determine whether you should go and confront this person? Or should you go and confess to this person? So let's look at the elements of an effective confrontation. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What a picture of what our tongues can be like. It can be like you're jabbing somebody with a sword. You're puncturing them. You are puncturing their life with our words. But our words should bring the opposite. Wise words bring healing. We don't want to go to someone and we know there is conflict and we're in the midst of it and make it even worse. We don't want to exasperate. We don't want to throw more fuel on the fire. We don't want that to spread. Has anybody ever tried to start a bonfire with gasoline before? I know we're not supposed to do that. You know, you know it's very not, not wise to do that, but I'm guilty of that, you know, to the point where we made a big pit, you know, and you 
And you go and, you, and you're being all clever and you pour gas right over here and then you make a little line over here outside of the pit thinking it's going to follow the line. And, and you try to strike the match and it takes too long to get the match to light. Finally, you throw it in and what's happened? That gas has spread and all of a sudden, before you know it, you're dodging fireballs and things flying up out of the pit and running, you know, trying to knock you over. That's not the way we're supposed to do it. That's the picture of throwing gas on something that's already burning. It's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly foolish. It's not thinking of anybody around you either because it spreads. <clears throat> we are to have wise words that bring healing. So the first thing is pray. Before you open your mouth, pray. Pray. Now notice too, there's not like, okay, pray, there's not a pray once about it. This needs to be an ongoing, continuous action that you pray, not just first, but you pray all the way through it. But pray. Choose the right time and the right place. Choose the right time and the right place. You know that your spouse has had a, 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 there's a conflict going on. You come home at the end of a long day and, and you've just dealt with traffic on 1604, which is people are stopping on a corner for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> you know, you've dealt with that. You've dealt with, you know, boss with some unrealistic expectations or you have dealt with customers that are rescinding their orders, whatever it might be, with your buddy sitting next to you that's laughing at you all day because he stole your parking space. <laughs> whatever it might be. Probably not a good time to start talking right when you get home, would it? Choose your times wisely. Think of the other person and what they have and, and, and their, that's going on with them and choose the right time and the right place. Now, going to a coffee shop to confront something about something sinful probably is not a good idea either. It needs to be private. It needs to be quiet. So you need to choose the right time, the right place. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So the next thing is, the next point there is to believe the best about others until you have the facts to prove otherwise. Believe the best until you have the facts that prove otherwise. Matthew 18, again, 15 says to go to, uh, go to them. In other words, it's talking about going to them to try to meet in person whenever possible. Try to meet in person, Zoom or text. Probably isn't the best way to go about this. You need to be face to face. Face to face. Go to them. Plan your words. Plan your words. Think about it. Think before we speak. Ask yourselves the questions. Do I have it right? Am I saying it right? Is what I'm saying, is it biblical? Use a gracious tone of voice and, a fr and friendly body language. You know, there's something I really need to talk with you about. So let's talk about it. What am I conveying? I'm annoyed. 
right? That's not friendly body language. Leaning forward, eye contact, listening closely. That is what, how we want to go about this. Use a gracious tone. Don't raise your voice. Keep your voice normal, a normal speaking voice. We want to communicate in that way as well. Use the Bible carefully. Don't preach. Don't preach at them. That's not the time for that. Don't preach at them. And ask for feedback. Ask for feedback. Is that, I say it too, probably too much. I say, does that make sense? Am I making sense? I'm asking for feedback. You might ask them, you know, am I leaving anything out? Or you might ask them, what do you think about this? Do you agree? Do you disagree? You're asking for feedback, right? So those are the elements of effective, of an effective confrontation. So let's look at a little bit of a, a little bit more practical communication skills. Okay, look at it a, bit, a little bit more. <clears throat> Ephesians four twenty nine says, "Speak only to build others up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that that it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear." So. We need to watch our words. Our words matter. Our words count. We need to build up. There is possible to confront somebody about something in a positive way that builds them up. We're not there to, to, to decimate them or tear them down or put them in their place. Ask good questions. Let me ask you, what makes a good question? I'm going to take a sip of water. What makes a good question? Open-ended. What does that mean? Give them a chance to explain on their terms. Okay. Not just be yes or no in short. Yeah. Okay. So have it open-ended, not just a yes or no question. Right? I would say no, that comes from one that should have been listening to the other Okay, yeah, one that shows that you've been listening. In other words, it's informed by the conversation that you're having. Sure, yeah. Those are good. That's exactly right. But also, when we're asking questions, we're including them in the situation. And that's what we want to do. It doesn't need to be just us barraging them. We want to engage them, if that makes sense. Listen carefully. You know, we're going to talk to somebody about a particular situation, but you need to listen very carefully. Listen carefully. We need to wait. Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. We need to wait. We need to listen to them, not interrupt them. Let them speak. Let them say what they're going to say. It's Proverbs 18, 13. By the way, parents, Proverbs 18 is a really good one for you with your kids. Just saying. I want to read it, study up on it. Lots of good things there. Good, helpful things there. 
But wait, listen to them. Let them speak. Don't interrupt. Concentrate. We need to be concentrating. We need to be focusing on what they're saying. We need to ask clarifying questions. We need to ask clarifying questions. Are you saying... You know, would you give would you give me an example of those are clarifying questions we need to be reflecting we need to be reflecting so from so basically as we hear what they're saying you're, you say something along the lines like from your perspective I was wrong when X took place you're reflecting on what they've said and you're responding to it you really care about this. We need to agree. We need to agree. You're right. I should not have done X, Y, and Z. I should not have tried to start the fire with gasoline. You're right. A lot of what you are saying is true. A lot of what you are saying is true. And I can understand why you feel this way. That is agreeing with them. Now, it is not taking on something that is not yours to bear. Be careful. We're not agreeing just to pacify or to make things okay. We need to agree to what we have done. Okay? You also need to recognize your limits. Recognize your limits. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably peaceably with all. We need to recognize our limits. So you think about it. It's your job to speak the truth in a loving and clear and perfect as persuasive as possible. But it's God's job to change people. Okay? It's God's job to change people. We cannot change people. We cannot force them to do anything. It's God who who creates the change. But we want to do what we should do, and that is to speak truthfully in a loving manner, clearly, and with in a persuasive way. So that is going to someone on your own. You're to do all of those things. So what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work at that point? Well, then you take somebody with you, according to Matthew 18. The next step to take is take one or two others along. Matthew 18, verse 16, talks about that very thing. When should you involve other people? So the answer to that, the, the operative verb here is that if he refuses to listen. Not if he doesn't do it in your time frame. Not if he doesn't respond the way you think he should or she should. But that if he refuses to listen to you refuses to listen. Only after 
you've attempted step one, which is to overlook what you can overlook and to overlook minor offenses. And only after you have exhausted going to them one-on-one. Does that make sense? There are no magic numbers when it comes to this. You may need to go to someone more than once. I know if you're like me, I don't get it the first time usually. It usually takes me another time or maybe even two before I understand completely. So we need to be patient in that way and be gracious and loving in that way and to go to them as often as we need to to try to deal with the situation. There's no requirement. Okay, third time, that's it. Three strikes, you're out. Now we're going we're gonna to ramp this sucker up. That's not what Scripture says. Not even when it gets to the very end, as, as in church discipline. It doesn't say the, the, the number, uh, prescribed number of times to go and talk with someone. But only after we've exhausted those three things do we take somebody with us. So who should we bring with us? Let's think about that for a few minutes. Who should we bring with us? And we want to bring the right person into this situation. We want to think about that. We want to pray about that. We want to bring someone who will be a concil- a conciliator. Is that right? Say that right. I want someone to be a conciliator. Remember the, the slippery slope we talked about? Conciliation responses are the ones at the top. Those are the ones that talk about biblically working through things. Right? We want someone that's going to help us do that. We want someone who will seek to respond and help all of us involved to respond in such a way that honors God. It's in a way that's in accordance with Scripture. And respond in a biblical way. So let's think for a moment about what a conciliator does. He encourages self-control and courtesy. So this person you've brought it in brought in is to encourage self-control and courtesy. Because it is often the tendency, if someone doesn't listen to you the first time, to go in the second time a bit more charged up. And you want to be careful. So you want someone that's going to help you not to respond that way. Encourage, encourage self-control and courtesy. They ask questions to clarify facts. They don't just take your word for it. They want to clarify, ask questions and clarify and get the facts. They counsel and admonish by God's word. I notice it doesn't just say they're admonishing one person. There might be two people they admonish in certain ways. But they come in and they counsel and admonish with God's word. They expand the resources. You might want to look for someone that has some wisdom, particular wisdom, or maybe some experience with this particular thing. So they expand the resources. And they observe conduct and report to the church if needed, if it goes to that point. So when does this become a church discipline issue? So a lot of folks, when you, when you throw out Matthew 18, we automatically go to church discipline. 
Uh, this is about church discipline. And we think of the whole portion of that passage as talking about church discipline. When is it church discipline? Well, to help us think about that a little bit, let's look at what, the, what we're talking about. What are the purposes of church discipline? What are the purposes of church discipline? To prevent dishonor to God. Romans 2, 23 through 24, again, talks about situations taking a place that dishonor God, that defame Him, that, that distract or pull people away from the church. It's to, to protect purity of the church, preventing the offender from leading others into sin. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about, it's the passage that says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the passage that talks about that. And the last purpose of church discipline is to restore the offender. This is probably the, the, the most important part is to restore the offender. This isn't to get rid of them. This is to restore them. So if the offender crosses these lines and will not listen to you, will not listen to one that you've brought to them despite your attempts, however many that may be, then you need to prayerfully consider consider it and ask the Lord to give you wisdom as if it needs to be a church discipline issue. We're going to ask the Lord, will it glorify you? Will it benefit others? Is it necessary to preserve the church? After prayerfully considering all of these things, then it is clear and it, and it, and it becomes clear that it should be a church discipline issue. You need to proceed to the next step. It is at this point that you must go to leadership and discuss the situation with them. Because it is the responsibility of the church leaders that is their responsibility to take this to the next level. It doesn't mean you may not be involved with it at some point, but it is their responsibility to do that, not yours. You don't need to take it upon yourself to talk, about, talk to the entire church about this particular situation or this particular person. We need to be very careful with that. It's very easy to do. I mean, you can blast somebody on social media in five seconds. We need to be very careful with that. We need to go to our leaders, the leadership of the church, and bring the situation to them. On a side note, we don't have to wait till this point to get involved with our church leaders either. That might be people that you want to take with you in this particular situation to, to help work through the, the issue. Okay? We don't want to wait till the very end to involve our leaders. They are here to serve. They do care about you and the things that are going on with you. And they want to help you however they can. <clears throat> Somebody that might give you, consult you, they might be people that you just consult for wise counsel in regarding this situation. There's many reasons that you, should, you know, could include them. But the next step is the step of telling it to the church. Tell it to the church. 
verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, meaning you and the other people that you've brought with you, then you tell it to the church. We tell the church to enlist the church to pray for this person, to pray for this situation, to speak to this person or pursue this person, and to gently confront them about their sin and gently urge them to repent and follow the Lord. So when you're telling it to the church, you are enlisting not just three of you, not just four of you, but you're enlisting all of the people of the church to begin praying about this situation and to pursue this person in a right manner, to restore them, to restore them. And if that does not work, however long that takes, whatever time period is decided for that to be the right time period, if that doesn't work, then we're instructed in verse 17 to treat them as, an unbe- as a non-believer or as a tax collector, which I guess that was the, one of the biggest insults you could give someone. They're acting like a tax collector of that day. <clears throat> the last step is to treat them as a non-believer. Verse 17 speaks of that. Now, for us to understand that, To treat that as a functional decision, okay? To treat that as a functional decision, not a heart decision. Not a heart decision. Ultimately, we do not know a person's heart. We do not know if they are a believer or not. The Lord does. The Lord knows that. Only the Lord can make that judgment. And we need to treat them like Jesus treated sinners. Treat sinners like Jesus treated sinners. who He loved them. He spent time with them. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. And we need to respond in that way as well. So now we want to move on to go and be reconciled. And I am not going anywhere near fast enough. So hang on. Matthew 5 verse 24 says, Go, but first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The idea is that we are to be going to them. It's an active thing that we are to be doing. Forgive as God forgave you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. That is a good verse. I would encourage all of you, if you have not memorized it yet, to memorize it this week. Memorize it this week. Ephesians 4.32. John MacArthur said, if you, you are never more like Christ than when you forgive You are never more like Christ than when you forgive. And you're never more like the devil than when you don't. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a decision. It's not a feeling. It's not an impulse. But it is is informed. It is not haphazard or reckless or spontaneous. 
It is a decision that is made that requires thought and understanding. Otherwise, it will be very easy to rescind. It's a decision that you make. The major penalty of sin is separation. The major penalty of sin is separation. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. We should want most of all to be restored to our great God and Savior by repenting from our sin, confessing it, and by pursuing restoration. We should also desire this for, for someone that, that may have sinned against us. We want them to be restored to their Savior. We want them their sin to be dealt with in a right way. This is what honors the Lord. That's is what we should want. This is what we should, this should be our goal to honor God in all these things, especially in this. Forgiveness releases us from that penalty. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2, verse 13. You see, our sins separated us from God, and then the work of Christ took that penalty away. Now we are not far off, but we are brought near. So I want to look here at what forgiveness really is. What does it really look like? What does it really mean to forgive someone? And there's four promises that, that, that gives us a model after God's forgiveness. Matthew 6, 12 says, forgive, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, we have been forgiven and we are to forgive. Colossians 3, 13 says, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. It's not an option. We must forgive. So in response to God's love for me and in, relation, in reliance on His grace, I forgive you in particular. I promise I will not think or dwell about this incident. I promise that I will not think or dwell on this incident. So you are making a promise to the person that has asked for forgiveness. This is what you're saying to them. That means that this is not going to dominate my thoughts. I'm not going to deep dive on this offense. I'm going to move forward. Now, it's hard for us as people to get to the point where we don't dwell and, and, and think on these things on a regular basis. We are created to remember. So in, in, in essence, what we're saying here is that I'm promising that I'm not going to think and dwell on this. In other words, when these situations come up, and they will, when this comes back to mind, I'm going to engage my mind by saying I have forgiven this person. I'm going to remind myself that I've forgiven this person. Therefore, I'm not going to think and dwell on it. Right? I promise I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. 
Now, there may be times when you have to talk with this person again about the situation. The difference here is that you're not using it against them. Right? Now, you may need to work through things in in the process of, of reconciliation that you need to bring it up and you need to talk more about it. It doesn't mean you never bring it up again. It means that you don't bring it up to use it against them. If you do bring it up, you bring it up to work through it and to change things. The next promise, I promise I will not talk to others about this incident. No one else will know. No one else will know. The last promise, I promise I will not allow this incident to stand between us and hinder our relationship from moving forward. You will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Make sure when you forgive others to tell them the source of that forgiveness, the work of Christ. That it's not you that's dwelling and and welling up all of this forgiveness in you. It's something that Christ has forgiven you of and has created in you. When should you forgive? When should you forgive? I can't hear you. As quickly as possible? Okay. Anybody else? Always, okay. When they ask forgiveness, okay. Now there's two real trains of thought here in, in Christianity. Some folks believe that you should not forgive someone until they ask for it. And then there's others that believe that as soon as you are able to do so, that you should go ahead and forgive them for it, regardless if they ever ask you. For forgiveness. I would say I'm in that last camp. How do you partially forgive someone? You're waiting on a transaction to take place for them to come to you and ask you for forgiveness. I think that is a way to get us to dwell on things that we shouldn't necessarily. I think I don't need to be harboring any wrongs in my heart against anyone. I need to get them out of my life as fast as I possibly can because I know how my mind works. I don't need to harbor things against people. Sure. Sure. <clears throat> Jay Adams has a book. Yeah, he does. Much aware of. Um, I have a little struggle with that uh, application of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not in that realm, in that camp either. But what, what do you, what do you, what's your comment on his conclusion? Well, we have like 20 minutes left, oh. and I don't know if I can actually get into that enough. But I'd be happy to talk with you about that at at, at whatever point. Um, but that is a relevant, uh, a relevant argument, and that's why I brought that particular element up. Um, look what. 
Luke 17.3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he, re- if he repents, forgive him. That does give you a progression there, right? But that's not a recipe for forgiveness, okay? A lot of times things don't necessarily happen in that same exact order. Mark 11.25 says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Colossians said, if anybody has something against you, forgive them. It didn't give a progression. It didn't say a clause, if they ask you to forgive. No, it just says, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. So, I think we need to be forgiving people. I think that needs to be the mark. Uh, Colossians what? Uh, three. Colossians 3 says that in there. Um, but what if they do it again? What if you forgive them and they do it again? What do you do? 79, seven. What is that? 79, Where's that found? Matthew somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. He's right. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. We are to forgive. And, and it's not, you know, was that 740? 70 times 7 is 700? 490. 490, sorry. Yeah. That doesn't mean that there's a cap, there's a number. What that means is that it's a ridiculous number. It's, a, it's beyond, there's no limit to the end of it. You'll never get to the end of our forgiveness. Because do we ever get to the end of God's forgiveness? And we're supposed to give like who? Like He has forgiven us, right? We're to give forgive like He has forgiven us. So then what about consequences? Does that mean we forgive things and then we never ever... And I mean, nothing changes. I mean, it's like you, you just say the words and off we go and, you know, la, 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 uh, things just happen. No, there is a time for consequences. There are consequences to our sin, even as believers. If you come down Nacogdoches Road up here and you drive as fast as you want, you're going to have a consequence, aren't you? Probably several different kinds, probably. Right? You know, there are laws. There are things. If we break those laws, we are willfully sinning. Okay? I said it. I said it. If we speed on purpose, intentionally, we're breaking the law. So you can draw your conclusion there. If a officer sees us, if we pull, he pulls us over and we say, oh, man, please, please forgive me. Are, are we going to still have consequences? If because we say, please forgive me, does that mean we will not have financial consequences? Or maybe even, you know, if you're driving as fast as you want, there could even be physical consequences where you are removed from public life and put somewhere else for a time. There are consequences to our actions, even as believers. So what, how are we supposed to think about that? There's a time for mercy. Now we want to be merciful people, right? We want to be merciful people, but we also want to be helpful. We don't want to enable this person in any way. We want to help them turn away from what they have done. 
But there is a time for consequences. That this particular person um, was in charge of the money box and they dipped into the money box. It probably wouldn't be a good idea after this process, they ask for forgiveness, you forgive them to give them the money box again. Right? Probably wouldn't be a good idea to do that. So there are consequences. Now let me talk real quick about unforgiveness. Overcoming unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will separate you from the Lord. We are commanded to be forgiving people. Unforgiveness will freeze you in time. Now that sounds weird. But think about it for a minute. If you do not forgive, you do not make those promises, I will think, I will dwell on this, I will use this against you. If we do not forgive, we will be frozen in the time of that incident when it took place. We cannot move past. We cannot move forward because we're tied to that situation. And what happens over time is that begins to grow. We become bitter. It becomes a filter that we see everything through. And we do not want to be there. We do not want to be frozen in that particular time. So we must forgive. We must forgive. We need to renounce sinful attitudes and unrealistic expectations that we have of folks. They shouldn't have to earn or deserve our forgiveness. We should not have a desire to punish the offender. That's not our place. We shouldn't be demanding a guarantee that they won't do this particular thing again. Does God require guarantees from us? No. What was number one? I'm sorry? What was number one? Oh, uh, to earn or, or deserve forgiveness? Is that what you're talking about? So the idea is that we, you know, that there's a, a principle of replacing these thoughts. And it may take us some time to do that very thing. It's the whole Ephesians 4 principle of putting off, renewing our mind, and putting on. Right? We, we need to replace our thoughts and we need to replace our words. Philippians 4.8 talks about what we should dwell on, how we should think. Romans 12, 2 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. In other words, we're not to curse them. We need to watch our words. We want to watch our actions, our deeds. Again, if, you're in, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. So it's our deeds. That's from Romans 12, verse 20. This whole idea here, forgive and forget. That's not true. Forgive and forget is not true. We forgive to forget. 
as we continue to forgive and continue to forgive, the incident fades and goes away. We need to continually forgive. In other words, we don't just forgive them once, but we are continuing to forgive. Yeah, they got it right there. What the last? I'm sorry. The last three lines begins. The thought, words, and deeds. Thoughts, words, and deeds. Yeah. Not a fast talker. So let me switch over in your notes here to the pause principle. The 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 fifth page that you have the pause principle so as as you can imagine it's going to take time for you to work through situations they don't just change overnight you know then a lot of times you would you refer this as negotiating okay you're not like negotiating at a deal it's you're working through it there's give and take on both sides to come up with a mutually beneficial solution to the situation but in that, we think about, there's a principle that we'd like to call the pause principle. It's prepare, affirm relationships, understand interests, search for creative solutions, and evaluate options objectively and reasonably. That's the pause principle. So we think about preparing. Again, first thing we need to do is pray. We need to get the facts. Identify issues and interests. Study the Bible. I probably should have put that one second right after pray. Seek godly counsel. Anticipate reactions. Pick a good time and place. Plan your opening remark and get the log out of your eye first. I know that was fast, so if you want to catch me later, we can get the notes. Affirm relationships. You want to communicate in a courteous manner. Spend time on personal issues. Exercise authority with restraint. Submit to authority in a godly manner. Earnestly seek to understand others' concerns and perspectives. Look out for the interests of others. Confront in a gracious manner. Give sincere praise and encouragement. It is important to understand people's interests in this. And the better, the, the better we understand others' interests, the more likely we'll be able to develop an acceptable solution. We must understand. Those next three lines there are issues, positions, interests.
We need to search for creative solutions. In other words, we need to work at it. We need to apply the things that we um, have learned. We need to brainstorm, come up with ideas, work together. Expand our resources, ask for help if we need to. We need to evaluate our options objectively. In other words, to look to God's truth. Get objective facts. Objective facts. Seek objective options. Attack the problem, not the person. So what if you get all to the end of this and they just won't listen? They just won't forgive. What do we do? What should we do? How should we think? Up and down there, dealing with unreasonable people. That's probably not a fair thing to say, but dealing with unreasonable people. Romans 12, verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Remember that we have divine weapons. Remember that we have divine weapons. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take a captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We have divine weapons. The Lord does divine things. The Lord changes hearts. We need to remember that. Control your tongue. Control your tongue. Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse them back. Romans 12, 14. Seek godly advisors. What do they say? How should we handle this? What should we try? What should we do? Do not let yourself become isolated. Don't let yourself become isolated, but seek godly advisors. Keep doing what's right. Keep doing what's right. If they do not respond as they should, it is never a license for you to do whatever you want. Someone else's sin is never a license for you to sin yourself or to do whatever you want. Okay? Again, remember your limits. We've talked about this a couple of times. That as far as this is possible with you, live at peace with all. But your ultimate weapon that you have is focused love. Showing these people love. I apologize for going so fast there at the end. It took me a little longer to get through it than than I had hoped. You do have two questions down there at the very bottom for the last 
10 plus minutes that we have. Just spend a few minutes talking about those in, on your, at your tables. And then let me pray for us first. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that you give us within conflicts. God, to trust you, to love you, to see you work. Father, I pray that our mindset are, are, are fixed on those things and not necessarily all the other stuff that goes along with conflict. But Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in us. And God, help us to be peacemakers. And it's in Christ's name. Amen.